How's everybody doing? Doing well today? It's good to see everybody. Having a good weekend so far? Okay. Are we uh, a little hungry this morning? Yeah. Um, just uh, by way of review, because I know some of you probably haven't been back much this summer, we've been doing a series on the priests. And for those of you who have been here, you're hopefully seeing that this is a, a primary theme that runs through the Bible. And hopefully it's not such a scary concept, or at least a foreign concept as it was before. But by way of review, let me just throw this out there. What's a priest? What's the purpose of a priest? I'll put it just real simple here. A priest is someone who gets us back into what we've been made for. Okay, and we have not been made for this world. And if you think you've been made for this world, um, you're completely fooling yourself. You and I were made for a garden. God made us for Eden. God made us to know his face. God made us to walk with him in the cool of the day. And because the garden has been lost, it's a priest's job to get us back into the garden. He's the one who guards the garden. He's the one who enjoys the garden. And he's the one who spreads the garden to the world by, uh, by getting us back into the garden. In fact, I think C.S. Lewis just sums up the human condition pretty profoundly in the weight of glory when he says this. He says, the inconsolable secret in every one of us the secret that hurts so much, the ache that we all feel is nothing more than our longing to be reunited with something in the universe that we all now feel cut off. He says this longing to be on the inside of some door, which we've always seen from the outside. This longing is no mere neurotic fancy. He says it's the truest index of our real situation. He says, this is the inconsolable secret of every soul, soul, that the door in which we've been knocking all of our lives will open at last. And the door that he's talking about is the door to the garden. It's the door into God. And a priest is the one who gets us through the door and gets us back. They stand in the gap between us and God. They clean us up. They wash us. They make us presentable to walk through that door. It's a priest. Now, let's uh, turn to Zechariah chapter 3. We're going to look at another high priest today, a text that I've alluded to a few times in sermons, but today I finally get to preach it, which I'm excited about. Um, while you're turning to Zechariah 3, I'd also like to hand out some texts for you to read uh, during this time. Um, just stand up wherever you are and, and read it, okay, to the community, because we stand for the reading of God's word. So it's someone like Jeremiah 31, verses 3 and 4. Thank you. With someone like Zechariah 6, 11 through 13. Thank you. Would someone like Exodus 40, 33 through 35? Okay, that's Exodus 40, the last sentence of 33, and then 34 and 35. I like this. 
um, because we learn in community. Would someone like Hebrews 10, verse 22? Right there, thank you. Pete, you're lucky, man. I was going to call on you if he didn't raise his hand. (laughs) All right, Zechariah 3. If you have a Bible like mine, it's found on page 669. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is Zechariah, the prophet, inspired by the Holy Spirit, speaking. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Shut up. Really, shut up, Satan. Don't you love that? The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem You shut up. Is not this man just a burning stick snatched from the fire? I'm telling you, that's all we are, you guys. We're burning sticks just snatched from the fire by the grace of God. But now Joshua, the high priest, was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel, the angel of the Lord, And the Lord said to him, to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments, rich clothes on you. And then I said, put a clean turban on his head. Now it's God speaking. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they clothed him, while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my garden, my house, and you will have charge over my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. And listen, O high priest, Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are, who are men of something greater, things to come. Because I'm going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone. The stone is the cornerstone, which refers to the temple. See this temple that I've set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone. And I will engrave an inscription on this temple, says the Lord Almighty. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And in that day, each of you will be invited back into the garden. You will sit under your vine and your fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. This is God's word. You can be seated. Okay, first let's just start with where we are in the story. Um, We know early in the biblical story that the garden is lost. And as a result, the world goes dark because in losing the garden, the world lost God. But the gospel is that God so loves the world, he's not going to give up on this world that he loves. And so God sets in motion a plan to reclaim the world and to restore the world. And so God once again replants his garden, where he's going to dwell with his people, where he's going to walk with them, where they're going to be plugged into him, where there's going to be priests who enjoy this garden, who guard it, and who spread the garden to the whole world. And what I want us to know is that Israel who God is doing this through, is not just a people who are called out of darkness, but they're called into something. 
They're called into something massive. And that is that as a nation, they are to be a nation of priests. So if you have priests, then you have to have a garden. And that's why God does this amazing thing. He replants his garden among them. And he says, I want you to be connected to me. I want you to know me. I want you to walk with me. I want you to become like me and through me to priest me into all the world. Now, over time, as you read the Old Testament, you see that Israel let the garden rot. And as the garden began to rot and their walk with God began to rot, they began to rot. So God then raises up Babylonians who come and exile them from the garden. I mean, it's a little bit like Adam and Eve getting kicked out. Israel gets kicked out. They're banished from the garden. But again, God could just say, I'm done. I'll go create another world. He doesn't give up on his people. Does anyone have Jeremiah 31, 3 to 4? that awesome? God's given us hope. It's like Israel. Even though you've been kicked out, even though you're exiled, it's like I can't help but love you with an everlasting love. And you're going to sing and you're going to dance. You're going to have your tambourines out again. And uh, so God opens the door for a remnant to return to the land. I mean, just imagine this. Um, They're exiled hundreds upon hundreds of miles away from their home, but then imagine this remnant coming home um, and, and all the excitement that would be associated with that. And it's, it's, it's in this time that Zechariah is part of this remnant and God gives Zechariah this vision that we just read about in Zechariah chapter 3. And, and it's a vision of this newly appointed high priest. And what you need to know is that at this moment in the story, there is no temple yet. There's no garden. It's just a hope. Kind of like today, living in Israel for four months, um, and all the Jews returning to the land, uh, you can still get this sense of this undercurrent, of this hope that they're, they're going to rebuild that temple. And that's where it is for Zechariah and for the people. It's, it's still just a hope. But, but look at how God spells out this hope. Who has um, Zechariah 6, 11 through 13? You guys hear that? (laughs) Through this Joshua, who's going to be called the branch, God's going to rebuild his house. He's going to replant his garden. And not only this, but this priest is also going to rule as king. Which to anyone who knows the Old Testament, you just know that these two offices of priest and king are always separate. But now they're going to become one in this high priest, Joshua, who's called 
the branch. This priest will be a king and this king will be a priest. So also what I want us to see is that Zechariah in chapter 3 gets more than just the vision of the high priest. He also gets a vision of the garden. Because verse 1 says that he sees Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord. Does anybody know what that refers to? This is technical language that describes something very specific, a specific day, a specific event. Does anybody know the day or the event that it describes? Good, you're going to learn something. Yom Kippur. Day of Atonement. Every time it speaks in the Old Testament about the priest standing before the Lord, it's that one day of the year when he goes into the holiest place as the holiest man on the holiest day of the year. And he comes as the people's representative to stand before the Lord as a priest, as Israel's very best, to stand in the gap on behalf of them, to stand before the judge of the universe as the people's advocate. Now here's where I get just a little bit bothered, if you don't mind. We have so lost something today in our understanding of God. We don't understand what a fearful and awesome thing it is to stand in the presence of God. I don't think we know that. I think most of us just think that we can just kind of flippantly just walk right into God, kind of just waltz right into his courts, and not realize what an awesome thing it is to be in his presence. Let me ask you a question. We've had a great summer. We've been out in the sun quite a bit. What do you know about the sun? I'll tell you just some basic things that even a a, a three or four-year-old knows about the sun. A a three or four-year-old knows that they can kind of look at the sun, but they can't look too long at the sun, right? And then if you get a little bit older, you might take um, a, a class in high school where you find out that the only reason we can survive is because we are millions of miles away from that sun. If we got too close to that sun or any closer, we'd be dissolved just like that. Who made that sun? He fashioned it in his hands. He can look right into it. And that sun represents billions upon billions of suns and galaxies. That's God. 
the Son, but one so great, so pure, so holy, so awesome, that Son is just minuscule in his hands. And how do we not know? This God is absolutely and profoundly holy. I think one of the most profound pictures that God gives in the Bible is when God reveals himself to Moses. And it's like just an inkling of his manifestation of who he is is provided to Moses in the burning bush. Because that's what God is. He's, he's this all-consuming fire. But the amazing thing about that whole experience of Moses is that he, he saw the consuming fire, but it didn't consume the bush. What a picture. That's a picture of God. He wants to dwell so badly with his people, and he's going to dwell with Moses, I'm going to dwell with your people, but I'm not going to consume them. And then he asked them, he said, uh, later in, in, in the book of Exodus, uh, he says, all right, I want you to build me a tent. You have your tent, I want to have my tent, because I want to dwell among you, I want to mo- walk among you. And all these chapters in Exodus are devoted to the building of this tent. And then finally, when the tent is completed, well, who has Exodus 40, 33 through 35? Do you hear that? Not even Moses can draw near to God. That's why we need a priest. A priest's profession, first of all, is holiness, and his job is to make the unclean clean. He's to make the impure pure, so that they can approach and draw near to the judge of the universe. Now, I think the closest thing that we get to this is probably court, and I've referred to this before. I don't know about you, but I've had to stand uh, before a judge in court. Raise your hand right now, so I'm not the only one raising my hand. If you've had to stand before a judge in court, thank you. Um, My experience was one of great trembling and fear. I was a youth pastor, just started this job in Indiana, and uh, I got a ticket for expired plates and expired plates in Indiana is a bigger deal than it is in Michigan because you pay taxes on those plates and I don't know he probably saw me as this cocky 20 something kid standing before him and I wasn't I was scared out of my mind and he totally threatened me with prison and I'm just thinking to myself oh great I'm just recently married I'm a youth pastor at a church and I'm going to jail That's court. But see, here's the deal. I, I've noticed this in, 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 in evangelical Christianity today. This whole courtroom understanding of God, that God is a judge and that we're sinners and that God has to do something about that sin. There's evangelicals that want to do away with all of that. Like it's not in the Bible. Like we're too sophisticated to believe in a holy God, a holy judge, and that we could possibly be unclean or defiled through our sin. 
But let me ask you a personal question right now. What do you look like? See, all of us walk around with this mental image of what we look like to ourselves and to others. I don't care. You can sit here and say I'm above this, but you're not. I mean, we all want to appear a certain way. I mean, think about how much time you spend looking in the mirror. Think about how many pics you take of yourself and how many of those pictures you post of yourself. Why all the selfies? Why all the Facebook stuff? And then why do you post the good ones but throw away the bad ones? See, we all have this sense of of both our attractiveness and our ugliness. And see, I'm not just talking about our physical appearance right now because we also have this moral image of ourselves. We have this idea about how we look to others both morally and spiritually. And some of us right now feel morally and spiritually beautiful and some of us right now feel morally and spiritually ugly. This also carries into an image we have about ourselves relationally and socially. Are we liked or disliked? And see, we may think we're we're, we're too sophisticated for this courtroom understanding of God, but see, we live our whole lives in a courtroom. Our whole existence, we feel like we're on trial. I mean, just think about all the human courts today that are declaring their verdicts about who and what you are all the time. I mean, everybody today feels like they can be an armchair quarterback. And there they are, up in the stands, looking at you, and they're critiquing you, they're making opinions about you, they're making judgments about you. It could be your family, it could be your friends, it could be your work, it could be the court of public opinion, it could be where you go to school, it could be through the sport that you play, or it could even be your own heart, And see, in this highly individualized, high-performance-driven culture, we live our lives on trial before all these human courts. And so think about it. Think about how often you feel this need to prove yourself and to prove your worth and to argue your goodness and to prove to others your goodness. To just show people, hey, I'm okay. I mean, how much of our life is, is spent making a case to our parents that we're pretty good kids or to our friends that we're pretty good friends or to our bosses that we're pretty good employers? I mean, all, as Shakespeare said, all, all the world's a stage and all of life is a performance. And here's the deal. What kind of case are you making? You're trying to make a case. But even more than the human court, our hearts know right now that there's an ultimate court to which we need to answer. Because deep within, we can try to stuff this thing out, but we know there's a God. A holy God. Who we all stand before. And one day, we're going to meet him face to face and we're going to stand in his presence. What's your case? What's your defense? Do you have one? I mean, right now, what do you look like before God? Do you even know? Do you feel beautiful or do you feel ugly? 
see, this is why the ancients who understand that God is just absolutely holy, they said, we need a priest. Because we are morally and spiritually repulsive to God and we need someone who's going to clean us up and make us presentable to him. Now think about it. Go back to that courtroom scene. What is it that makes or breaks you in court? It's all about the person who represents you. You're only as good as your attorney. It's not your performance that matters. It's his performance. If he's good, you're good. If he's bad, you're bad. Because in a sense, we're hidden in that person who's representing, representing us. This is why it's, it's foolish to enter a courtroom without someone to represent them. In the same way, we would never enter the courts of a holy God without a representative. Without someone who can make us presentable. Someone who's going to wash us and cleanse us and, and represent us so that we can draw near to him. That's the role of a priest. So it's Yom Kippur. The holiest day of the year. When their representative went into God's courts to stand before the judge of the universe and to plead on their behalf. I want you to know on this day, this, is a, this day it's a one-man show. It's one priest. All the other priests um, are on the sidelines. And you have no idea how much went into this day. I mean, this high priest prepared for this day like an Olympian would pr- prepare for the Olympics. For the whole week leading up to this day, the high priest went into total seclusion to keep himself from touching anything unclean, from seeing anything unclean. And during this week, he'd wash and he'd, he'd pray and he'd meditate on Torah, especially Leviticus 16. The night before, he did not sleep. He wasn't supposed to sleep. He gathered other priests around him to pray. Then when he woke up that day and went into the temple, it was like walking into the Super Bowl. All eyes were fixed on him. They were there to stand with him. They were there to cheer him on, root for him, because that was their man, their representative. In fact, there were 40 specific steps that this priest had to know to perform this thing perfectly. If he did one thing wrong, if there was one misstep, he had to start completely over. Man, I would have been such a head case. I would have. But what I want to highlight out of these 40 steps is all the times this guy had to wash. The first washing was right after performing the morning sacrifice. Then rather than changing into his, his beautiful, uh, costly ephod, he put on just white linen just like everybody else that day, because he was going to stand with the people and for the people. This was all done behind a curtain so that people could see his shadow. He then came out, he sacrificed a bull to atone for his sins, and that was followed by another bath. He then went through this routine again, sacrificing this time a bull on, on behalf of the sins of the priest, and then he washed and he changed again into a pure white garment. And then he did this again, doing this for for the sins of the people. Washing, changing, putting on the white linen. He washed a total of five times. But look at our text. Look at verse 3. 
And Joshua went into the holies of holies and stood before the Lord. And now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And here he is. I mean, if you look at verse 1, um, he's standing before the angel of the Lord. Who's that? In my mind, that's the second person of the Trinity because all of a sudden, the next verse, it says, Then the Lord, referring to the angel of the Lord, said to Satan. And there is Satan right there as he stands before, before the second person of the Trinity doing what Satan does. And I don't know if you even know what Satan's name means. Sometimes we think of Satan as the tempter. Sometimes we call Satan the enemy. But Satan literally means the accuser. That's what he does. He, he just accuses us. And he does it all the time. He is constantly in my ear telling me, Rod, you suck. I'm sorry to be so crass, but that's literally how I hear it. And he says it about anything and everything that he can. And this whole picture in, in verse 1 is, is, is really a, a, a picture of what's going on right now. And look at verse 3. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel of the Lord. The word filth there literally means, it's the word for excrement. I can't say that four-letter word here because we're in church. He's covered with it. His clothes are completely soiled. Wait, how did this happen? Why is, why is God seeing that? This is a man who's just bathed five times. Because this is what God sees when he sees the holiest man on the holiest day of the year doing the holiest of activities. As our very best stands before a holy God, God sees a man as if he's covered in dung and excrement. That clothing in the Bible is imagery that's used to describe really what's under the clothes. So torn clothes represent a torn and broken heart. And soiled and stained clothes represent a life that's soiled and stained. And dirty clothes represent a heart that's become dirty. And Isaiah 64, I think, says it so well. All of us have become like someone who is unclean. And our righteous acts are nothing more than filthy rags. Religious person, do you know that? Do you know that? Your very best. Do you know what it looks like to God? Do you really? I'll tell you what. I need to hear this. And then I like to combine it with David because we know David had had such a heart that longed for the courts of God. He said, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And in Psalm 24, he says, who can ascend uh, to the holy hill? Who can stand in that holy place? And David gives us the answer. Only the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Only the clean can stand before a holy God, can, can come into his courts and into his presence. And here's the deal. I think many of us today still think that we can cleanse ourselves. That if we can just perform good enough for God, that then God will kind of 
like us and accept us. That if we can just do enough good religious things, God will say, okay, that's pretty clean. That's clean. Come on in. And I'm going to tell you, this is the problem with living in West Michigan where religion is so thick. Because religion somehow tells us that through all this religious stuff, somehow we can get God to like us by by performing good enough for him. And then others of us, I think, actually think that we can fool God, that we can somehow look good enough on the outside that somehow God isn't going to be able to see the inside. And so then we use our appearance to cover up our heart, and we think, if I can just clean the outside good enough, somehow that's going to make the inside clean. We can't hide. We can't cover our heart. We can't cover the stains. We can't cleanse ourselves. We need a priest. And guess what? We have one. You know Joshua's name in Hebrew? Yeshua. In fact, my, my, one of my profs when I was at JUC who taught in one of the seminaries here, was talking about a time when he taught over there for like two years. And um, his, his kids were younger at that time. And, and one of his boys' name was, was Joshua. And so his kids are out there playing with, with all the Arab kids. And all of a sudden he hears someone yelling out, Yeshua, Yeshua. And he's like, wow, someone named their kid Jesus. And he realizes, holy cow, they're calling my kid Yeshua. Yeah, dude, you name him Joshua. And in English, it's Jesus. And see, look at verse 8. God says to, to, to Yeshua, this is just symbolic. It's just a shadow of greater things to come. There's going to be a greater Joshua, a Yeshua, a greater high priest who will come. And tell me, what is it that Joshua has experienced between God seeing his filth and God saying this, this, this greater thing that you've just experienced is yet to come? What's happened? Look at verse 4. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel of the Lord. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off the filth. And then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin. I'll put rich garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. That's God speaking. So they put a clean turban on his head. They clothed him as the angel of the Lord stood by. God removes his filth. Not only that, all that's soiled, all that's dirty, not only is that all removed, but the Lord dresses him. One of my favorite stories in the life of Jesus is one day when he says to his disciples, hey guys, let's get into a boat and let's go to a place that just screams unclean. In fact, the boat actually hit shore at a, at a cemetery, which is, in the Jewish worldview, the most unclean place of all. It's a Gentile area. That also makes it unclean. On top of that, there happens to be a pig herder, which is uh, the unclean 
clean food. And then to top this whole, whole thing off, this horrific, naked, demonized man comes running at them. In fact, demons are the epitome of unclean. And that's why the disciples never get out of the boat. But Jesus says to this man, unclean, come out of him. And I love this story because not only does Jesus remove the unclean from this man, all of it. But what touches me the most is that when the townspeople come to see what's happened, they see this once disgusting, naked freak of a man who's now dressed in his right mind. He's naked. Now he's dressed. Who dressed him? I'm going to tell you, Jesus came as a high priest to this unclean world to find unclean and to make it clean, to find those who have so soiled their life, who feel so stained and so dirty, and to dress them in himself. Do you know right now that Jesus can take all that's filthy and dirty in your life, the stains and the spots, and he will dress you? And what do I mean by dress? Your life will be hidden in him. His righteousness will now become your righteousness. His performance will now become your performance. His beauty and glory will now become your beauty and glory. You'll be hidden in him. And you know how he does this? This Yom Kippur that we're reading about in Zechariah 3 is but a shadow of a greater Yom Kippur that is to come. Because one week before Jesus' Yom Kippur, Jesus prepared. And instead of having friends to pray with him the night before, Jesus is abandoned. And instead of having a whole community of people to, to cheer Jesus on, he is rejected by everyone. Instead of being clothed in a white robe, he's stripped naked. Instead of bathing in in this golden basin, he's bathed in human spit. Instead of having God to protect him before his accuser, Satan, even God turns his face. And see, if you know anything about Yom Kippur, the highlight of Yom Kippur is when the two goats are brought out to the high priest and and one goat is designated the scapegoat. And what the priest does, the high priest does, is, is he puts his hand on that goat. Because the laying on of hands symbolizes the complete transfer of identity into that object. And so as the priest lays his hands on that goat... He's not only transferring his identity, but also because he stands as the people's representative that day, the people's identity into that goat, including all their unclean. Leviticus 1 verse 4 talks about, for with every sacrifice, there's the laying on of the hands by the worshiper. And, 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 and when the worshiper does this and then takes the, th- the, the, the knife and, and slits the throat and the blood is poured out, God says atonement is made. We don't like that. But this word atonement there 
is it, it, the first usage of this word. It, it, it's Kippur. That's why it's the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The first usage of Kippur is in Genesis 6, verse 14, and it refers to this protective covering that, that covers the ark, both inside and outside. Because what worship is, it's about drawing near to a holy God. And we can't stand in the presence of a holy God without covering. This is precisely what God did for Adam and Eve. He dressed them. He covered them. And see, on Yom Kippur, after the priest just laid the hands on that goat and, and, and their identity as a people, including all their unclean, what was placed upon that goat. What happened to the goat? It was led out into the wilderness to die as a picture that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And so Jesus, in this picture, he's not only the high priest who stands before God and stands in the gap, but he's also the goat. All of our sin... All of our filth was placed upon his head. In fact, this vision that that Zechariah gets of Yeshua, the high priest, covered in the filth and the dung from head to toe, only foreshadows a greater Yeshua who bore our sin, completely covered in it. And he was taken outside the city to die the death that you and I deserve to die. And because of this, Hebrews 10.22, who has it? That's why we draw near. Not because we're so not because of what we've done, not because of our performance. We draw near because he's so good. What he's done. And we're covered. And we can come in. And he can come into us. We're literally hidden in our advocate. Hidden. And I love how this ends. And in that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. That's a picture. That's the Bible's imagery for for heaven. In other words, Jesus gets us back into the garden because Jesus is the door. He's the way, the only way back. And here's what you have to ask this morning. Why did he do it? Gospel. The gospel is that the judge of the universe is your father and your representative who stands with you and before you, before that judge, is your brother. And they love you. They want you back. And so this morning, if you feel stained or defiled or dirty, maybe some of you have just had a season in your life where you've just so defiled yourself and you feel dirty and you feel unclean where are you going to take it I'm going to tell you something outside in will never work but today Jesus can make you clean from the inside out and here's the deal to be made clean 
all you need to do is lay your doing down, your performing down, and all the ways that you try to make yourself presentable to God. You need to quit hiding. You need to quit blaming others for who you are and what you are. And you need to come to them naked. Just as you are. In your filthy rags. And when you come to him with your filthy rags, and you let him dress you, You'll be clothed in the righteousness and the beauty and the glory of Christ. So today, we're just going to put that out there. We have mikvah. I love mikvah. I do mikvah all the time in the morning in the shower. (laughs) Because these hands still get dirty. His heart still gets dirty. My, my feet still get soiled. And I, it's not a ritual, but it's God. I know what you've done in Jesus. And I repent. Would you wash me? Wash my mind for, for those thoughts that I thought. And God, wash my mouth because I've said so much filth. And, and, and God, my heart's just willed things and wanted to do things. And my feet, they've they've gone places where my feet shouldn't go and they're dirty. We have communion. For those of you who just want to take in your priest. I don't want this to be a ritual. I don't want this to just be something that we do because that's what the church does. I only want people who want him, who need him, and who want to draw near to a holy God. And they want to do it through Jesus, the high priest, the only way. So let's pray. You're the best, Jesus. You're our hope. You're our defense. You're our covering. You're our righteousness. You're our beauty, our glory. You are the way. You are the door. And I pray, God, today that there would be repentance in my heart and in our hearts. That we would take you in. In Jesus' name, amen.